This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This ride-hailing thing is just a gong show out there right now. Coming up at the bottom of the hour, I'm going to speak to one of those Uber drivers who got written up for a $500 infraction ticket for going into Surrey. Remember that the provincial government had given the green light for the company to operate all across Metro Vancouver. So as far as the province goes, they're saying this is fine for ride-hailing to be in Surrey, not according to Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum. So I'll speak to one of those drivers who got a $500 ticket. That's coming up at the bottom of the hour. Meanwhile, one of the other kind of disturbing parts of the story is how disabled people are being dragged into this right now. you got the taxi companies saying that they will no longer offer incentives to drivers with wheelchair-accessible vehicles to respond to calls from uh, disabled customers this is terrible that that is a low blow and i think if the taxi companies really want to gather public support for their side of this debate i think the last thing they should be doing is dragging disabled people into it so we'll be talking about that on the show today but here's our hot question on that very topic should ride hailing companies be forced to offer accessible vehicles this is why the taxi companies are mad they say the ride-hailing companies don't have to offer these accessible vehicles, and they're right. So, and the taxi companies are. That's why they're doing this. Should the ride-hailing companies be forced to offer these accessible vehicles? Would you say, yes, it's a human right, or would you say, no, that's going to be problematic and a hassle for the ride-hailing companies and people are using their own car? At CKNW on Twitter is where you find the hot question today. At CKNW on Twitter. Give me a follow while you're there, please, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. S-M-Y-T-H, at Mike Smith News. Also, call me on the buzz line today. Leave me a voicemail there, 604-331-2899. No more Mr. Nice Guy Indeed by Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum. Now, you remember the mayor at first said that Uber drivers who go into Surrey would just get a warning ticket well, that's all over now. Now the city of Surrey's handing out the real bylaw enforcement tickets to Uber drivers. No more Mr. Nice Guy. 500 smackers. That is the fine for Uber drivers who go into Surrey and get caught by these bylaw enforcement officers. We're going to talk about that uh, coming up here in a, in a moment. Another thing we want to get into on the show today is how uh, disabled passengers have been dragged into this fight now. Uh, between Uber and Lyft and the taxi companies. That's coming up a little later. But first, let's talk about those bylaw enforcement officers in Surrey going after Uber drivers, writing them up with those $500 tickets for operating without a business license in Surrey. Very pleased to welcome Sukit Singh Hothi. He is an Uber driver. He got one of those $500 tickets in Surrey. Sukit, thanks for coming on. Hello, how are you? I'm great, Suki. Thanks for doing this. Um, when did you start driving for Uber? Actually, uh, day before yesterday, that was my first day, first trip, and I got a $500 ticket. Oh, no. Oh, yes, no. Uh, ex- yes, actually, I was going to airport uh do some couple uh, trip from uh, there, Richmond or Vancouver, and I was heading to Richmond, and uh, I was on 88 and 132nd. And uh, by the time I was there, like it, it, I got a... <laughs> uh, uh, to trip from Newton, so I turned around. I went to the Newton, and uh, when I got there, there was a lady named was um, uh, Kathy. 
And yeah, uh, she waved me. She said, oh, I'm at the front of a uh, liquor store. When I got there, stopped my car. And she, right after two seconds, uh, the bylaw officers all around my uh, car. <laughs> oh, man. So this was, you thought this was an actual customer and like an Uber customer you were going to meet there. That's right, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. The name was Kathy, so I don't know if it's a fake name or it's really mm-hmm. surprising me uh, when I got there. They gave me a $500 ticket, plus they gave me a, for my fare, uh, that was like a 9 or $8. That oh. was from a city account. That's really pissed me off. <laughs> okay, so I mean they paid, they paid for the fare. Yeah, they paid for the fare okay. from the city because the, the bylaw officers, they're not going to pay from the pocket. So I believe <laughs> no. it's, uh, it's going out from uh, city, city, uh, city pocket. Well, yeah, Surrey taxpayers. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay, and that doesn't. Why does that tick you off? That's right. Why? Why does it tick you off? Why are you angry about that? Because I got a five hundred dollars ticket and plus taxpayers' money paying yeah. to me. First yeah. of all, why are they why are they calling Uber? Their bylaw, they just you know they have to be uh, keep eyes on Uber if they're coming over or whatever. They give them fine, but they they taxed Uber. I need a I need a lift from Uber. Yeah. How many bylaw enforcement officers were there? It was three. Three, okay. And what did they say to you? Why, did they explain to you why they were giving you this ticket? They said, uh, you know what, uh, the mayor said you have to be a get ticket because you have uh, no license for the whatever city uh, business license or whatever it's called. Right. And uh, that's why I'm giving you $500. I'm sorry, uh, but it's not us, but it's from city, city of Surrey. I have to pay, uh, I have to give you this ticket. I said, okay. Okay, they said sorry while they were doing it. Nope. Oh, okay, they didn't say, "Hey, we we have to. We're being forced to do this. We don't want to do it, but we got to do it." Did they say anything like but that? They, they, that's what they said. You, you know, it's not us. It's from city. That's uh, we yeah. have a pressure from uh, Mr. Um, um, uh, uh, mayor. He yeah. he's telling us to uh, you know give give us a ticket to the all Uber drivers or Lyft drivers or whatever who's okay. picking up from Surrey. Okay, so this was your very first trip as an Uber driver. You get this $500 ticket. Are you still driving for Uber now? Yeah, I'm still driving, but it's a part-time job. Uh, I'm doing another job on site, but this is my part-time job, Uber. So I do like uh, four or five hours after work. And, uh, you, know, uh, you know, it's really expensive to live in B.C. here. So uh, it's really hard to survive. And it's a $500 stop of that, so I really got to surf. <laughs> How are, how are I going to pay that five hundred dollars? Well, have you have you paid the fine? Are you planning to pay it? No, no, no. I'm not okay. going to pay him. I'm going to dispute him. And right. uh, I think uh, Mr. Jack uh, Hundo, he, uh, I heard uh, he's saying he's going to pay for it. So I'm going to. I think if he if he's listening, this radio can uh, just tell him to contact <laughs> with me. You have my number, and can you pass I, it to the, him? Yes, I I do know Surrey Councillor Jack Hundal, and I certainly can pass your your number on to him, Sukeet. No problem. Uh, I know that I believe the councillor at one point did say that if anyone got a five hundred dollar ticket, that he would pay the fine. I think that's what he said, right? He said uh, I'm going to pay the fine, and if you need a lawyer, I'm going to pay for that too. So. Oh, okay. He might he might regret saying that because if they start writing up a lot of these tickets. Have you talked to your uh, your employer there, Uber? What have they told you about to do about this? Not not, not yet, because I was too busy uh, interviewing with the, uh, the, like TV and uh, radio and stuff. Yeah. I'm gonna call them tonight for sure. Okay, how does what they say? 
How does this make you feel as an Uber driver? Like you're saying you're continuing to do some work for Uber. Are you still picking up passengers in Surrey or are you staying out oh, of yeah, Surrey? Yeah, for now? sure. Not, not, not from Surrey, but I'm uh, staying out from Surrey right now. But uh, yeah, I'm going to keep doing it because it's a good job. If anybody looking for a part-time job or whatever, it's a really good job because uh, I, can't, I can't afford to drive a taxi because taxi is like $200 a uh, lease. And plus, you know, it's, they're not like, you know, I'm not against taxi drivers, but they're paying too much insurance, like $35,000 insurance per year. I, my friend yeah. drives a yellow cab, and he's so stressed out right now. Because how can I pay his uh, mortgage, whatever he pick up from, uh, you know, he just he bought a taxi like two years ago, $465,000, half yeah. late. Like, you That's know, a- half that's a lot. Your your cell phone's breaking up a, a little bit there, Sukit. How much uh, how much money have you made driving for Uber so far? Uh, around a couple of hundred bucks on uh, one night. Really? Five hours. You made two hundred dollars in one sh- one shift. Uh, yeah, but it's uh, they are making good money right now. Around four fifty to five hundred dollars, like ten hour shift. What what do you do for your regular job? You say this is kind of a side thing for you. What do you do in your normal job? Uh, I do uh, driving truck. You're a truck driver? Yeah. Okay. Are you going to keep driving for Uber, or is this kind of put you off the whole thing? No, no, I can keep driving uh, part-time. Okay, Suki, thanks for telling me the story. Thank you so much for having me there. Thank you. Okay. It. You bet. Sukit Singh Hothi. He is an Uber driver. You heard his story there, how he got called out to Surrey to pick up a passenger, and his car got surrounded by Surrey bylaw enforcement officers instead. They wrote him up a $500 ticket. You heard my conversation earlier on the show with that Uber driver who got the $500 ticket for operating in Surrey. Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum says Uber does not have a local business license. So bylaw enforcement officers handing out those $500 tickets. What about other municipalities in Metro Vancouver now? Let's take a look at what's going on in Burnaby. They want Uber drivers to get a local business license there too. My guest is Burnaby City Councilor Sav Dhaliwal. He's also the chair of Metro Vancouver. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Councillor, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Mike. What is the situation with ride-hailing in Burnaby today? Um, today, I I believe uh, this morning, Uber came in and got their business license from Burnaby. Okay. Uh, they have been operating in Burnaby since last Friday, and our staff reached out to them to say, well, you're in violation of our bylaws. If you want to operate in Burnaby, come and get a license. And here are our fees. Pay the fees. Uh, understand what the obligations are, and you can get a license. Uh, Uber, I believe, uh, I was speaking with the staff this morning. Uber came in this morning and picked up their business license. Okay, that's interesting. What is the fee for the license? $600 for the company and $500 for each vehicle that want to operate in Burnaby. And how many vehicles do they have operating in there? They have not picked up any license for a vehicle yet. That's oh. up to the driver. Uh, oh. They have said, and the drivers will be informed that they have a requirement to pay us $510, which is a vehicle license fee. It's exactly the same, Mike, what we charge Burnaby Taxi. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing, what we charge Burnaby Taxi Business, $600, exactly the same. We had made it known to to, the, uh, to, to Uber and Lyft what our 
and I'm pleased to see that they have conformed and picked up their license. Okay, so Uber has picked up the company license, but individual drivers also need a license to operate in, in Burnaby, right? So what happens if an Uber driver shows up on in the streets of Burnaby and they do, they have not purchased an individual license, the $500 license you described there? Well, they can expect to be fined. Uh, our staff generally follows through with the enforcement. Council doesn't get into that kind of stuff. We create policies, and the staff are expected to follow through, and, and they will work with the, the drivers as we have worked with the company to say, well, if you don't know there is a requirement for license, here it is, and please comply. And we expect all our businesses to comply. I think that's the only thing Canadian businesses want, you know, to do. They want to be in the law and order, and that's the Burnaby all right, speaking to Burnaby City Councilor Sav Dhaliwal, how much is the fine? Fine is $500, Mike, for each oh. violation. Oh, boy. Have any, have any uh, fines been handed out, to your no, knowledge? No, no, we, okay. we didn't hand, any, uh, hand out any fines. We said, well, look, we wanted to give, uh, give the company a bit of a time to work with us. And, and they recognize that the city, and even, you know, I've been hearing on the media, well, the cities can't stop, you know, these companies from operating. That's correct. We can't because it's a, it's a law of the province. They have, if it's illegal in the province, cities can't stop it, but cities have requirement. But the province has said, you probably read that, they're released, that the cities have the right, in fact, not a right responsibility to issue a license yeah. according to their own bylaws, whatever they happen to be. And our bylaw, we had said oh, about a month ago, two months ago, when we felt they were ready to go, we had said, well, we, we said we have a license uh, requirement already for a taxi company. It's very clear for us that license is about, you know, for, uh, for the owners and the operators of of uh, vehicles for hire. It's just simple as that. It doesn't matter what company it is. So we said this is what would apply to you. And uh, today they came in and picked up their license. So the company is now obligated to follow through with the requirements of the license. Uh, and that is generally, if their drivers aren't following, we will go with the with the company as well to say, you know, you have responsibility to make sure your drivers, before you dispatch them, have a responsibility to know what their their responsibilities are. Right. What do you think of the the ride hailing business? You're you're not a big fan of it, are you? Um, I have my own views, Mike. But yeah. you know, obviously, my council has decided that uh, that it's appropriate to follow what the province has said in terms of they have said yes, um, ride hailing uh, companies can operate. That's fine. And so, therefore, I go with, I obviously, I go along with what council's decision is. Personally, I feel there's a fair amount of a disparity between what the local companies have, what the now the foreign companies are allowed to do, and that's not good. That's not good for our businesses. I've been, always been very supportive of our local businesses. Uh, I do not uh, support any business that has a preference from a government uh, and and certainly the city of Burnaby will not give any different any preference to any company we could regard them all the same regard as far as the taxis are concerned they could be any company from anywhere but they will have to uh, comply with our yeah. bylaws and i think i think um, it's appropriate for us as city policymakers to expect all businesses to be the same, treated the same, and, and, and I imagine that's what all cities are trying to do. Do you, do you think that 
it just seems like a bit of a patchwork system that we have here now. Like Vancouver has a license requirement. You guys have a license requirement. Uh, the city of Surrey is doing their own thing. <laughs> it just seems like kind of a crazy way to run to run a metro-wide business. Why not? Do you support the concept of a single business license for the entire Metro Vancouver region? Yes, we do. In yeah, fact, okay. we have our staff working with the, the working group to come back with a, a, a single license if that can work. But we are not going to give up on some of the requirements that we believe are necessary uh, to see that <clears throat> the businesses coming in, you know, they, they are sort of sim- required to do similar, uh, resp- have to have similar responsibility as the company been, which been, have been here for decades. Uh, one of the things that we are looking for, the the new companies to also comply with one of our requirements that is 15% of their fleet operating in our city must be what we call the wheelchair accessible vehicles. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is to protect our residents who rely on taxis to make sure that they do have that service. We we expected from Bonnie's taxis over the years to make sure they do not go below 15%, and they haven't. And we also stated to them that these vehicles are, have a priority for people when they call. And you have a certain amount of uh, time to respond. If you don't, you are accountable, and we might withhold your license from future, uh, time, future years. And they have... Um, uh, very ably complied, and and that the same thing we expect the other two other companies coming in to to also supply vehicles. Fifteen percent of their fleet must be operating in Burnaby. They want to operate in Burnaby to be equipped what? with uh, wheelchair accessible vehicles. If you've been hearing you've been hearing the concerns on part of the uh, uh, physically disabled communities and saying you know they're going to be um, sort of used as. As, as one of those um, uh, people who are caught in crossfire, we don't want them to be. We want to make sure they get the service, and we have informed um, Bonnie's taxi that we expect them to continue to have that 15% f- fleet numbers, yeah. and we'll expect Uber and others to do the same thing. So I have last question for you. You're asking these Uber drivers to buy a $500, or a fi- a $500 uh, vehicle license in the city of Burnaby. Mm-hmm. If if we get this regional license, which you said you support for the entire Metro Vancouver region, which I think should have been in place already, but when it does come in, if it does, would those Uber drivers who paid for the Burnaby license get a refund? No, no, they they won't give a refund. We don't generally give refunds because we have already charged City of Bonnie's taxi the same. You know, we're not going to go and give 100 taxis refunds. That's the bylaw of today. Tomorrow we will have changed our bylaw, but generally we'll go forward right. if that happens to be our our agreement at the regional with the regional uh, business right. license we will pro- we will adjust the fees both for Bonnie's taxis both for all right. companies you know if we like to we think that still works for us we will adjust the fees if we don't we will continue with our fees thanks for coming on you're welcome Mike. I, I appreciate it that is Burnaby City Councilor Sav Dollywall he's also the chair of Metro Vancouver you heard him his description of what's going on there he says Uber has taken out a license in the city of Burnaby $600 but each individual vehicle is also supposed to, and a driver is supposed to buy a $500 license separately and getting lots of emails and tweets over the news hour 
with questions about how the city of Surrey can hand out these $500 tickets. Isn't that like entrapment if you call in uh, an Uber ride under the pretense that you're paying for their services, an Uber driver, and then you surround the car with bylaw enforcement officers? Is that going to stand up in court? I think that's a really good question, and I think we're going to find out as well. Earlier on the show, I spoke with Sukit Hoti. He is an Uber driver who got a $500 ticket in Surrey. It was his very first ride as an Uber driver. Yeah, welcome to the ride-hailing business. Very first ride, a $500 ticket in Surrey. I spoke to him earlier on the show. He told me how the whole thing went down. I was going to airport to uh, do some couple trip from uh, there, Richmond or Vancouver, and I was heading to Richmond, and uh, I was on an 88 and 132nd. And uh, by the time I was there, like it, it, I got a, <laughs> a, a trip from Newton, so I turned around, I went to the Newton, and uh, when I got there, there was a lady named was um, Kathy, and Kathy, uh, she waved yeah. me. She said, oh, "I'm at the front of a liquor store." When I got there, stopped my car. And right after two seconds, uh, the bylaw officers all around my uh, car. So this was, you thought this was an actual customer and like an Uber customer you were going to meet there. That's right, yeah. Yeah, Uh, The name was Kathy, so I don't know if it's a fake name or... It's really Mm -hmm. surprising me uh, when I got there. They gave me a $500 ticket, plus they gave me for my fare. That was like $9 or $8. That was from a city account. That's really pissed me off. Okay, that is uh, Sukit Hoti. He's an Uber driver there talking about how he got his $500 ticket. He got a call out to pick up Kathy in front of the liquor store in Surrey. And when he arrived, his car was surrounded by Surrey bylaw enforcement officers instead. And as you heard him describe there, he got the $500 ticket. Interestingly, he says that the $8 fare for the ride, remember that you always pay in advance for your Uber ride, right? So he said he actually got the payment for the fare. He said it was eight or nine bucks. So he got called out to pick up Kathy at the liquor store. They paid for the trip, eight or nine dollars. And it turned out to be a sting operation. Surrey bylaw enforcement surround the car and they give him a $500 ticket. He says he's not going to pay it. He's going to fight it. I wonder if he'll be able to overturn that. Let's get some legal analysis on this now. Dean Davidson is a lawyer. He specializes in municipal law, and he joins me now to talk about the legality of this. Hiya, Dean. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm great. Thanks a lot for doing this. What do you think about what you're hearing here with the city of Surrey using these uh, tactics? Well, um, so I listened to that clip, and I I heard from uh, the driver that I think he said he was on his way to Richmond. He was in Richmond. It doesn't sound like he was in Surrey. Um, so as far as entrapment, it uh, sounds like they asked him to come into Surrey, right. where they then gave him a bylaw. So I think technically that would be entrapment, although I will say entrapment is usually something used for a criminal defense. It's not typically an administrative type uh, bylaw ticket defense, but it's certainly something I think that the judge would be interested in. Yeah, so if you were, let's say you were defending this guy and he wanted to try and beat the rap on this ticket, could you stand up in front of a judge and say, this was not fair, I was kind of lured there under false pretenses or something? Like, how would that defense work? Um, I think the defense would be more that the city of Surrey doesn't have the authority um, because uh, under ride-hailing, because it's actually provincial legislation, and they, um, 
they have the, the authority, I think, to, to regulate it, but not to block it. So there's that. Also, I think uh, uh, Uber's taken the position that because this is a Motor Vehicle Act um, matter, that, again, the city of Surrey bylaw don't have the ability to um, find people for it. So I think that it's a jurisdictional argument. Um, and yeah. I think the entrapment, my sense is that the judge just generally wouldn't be too happy with some of their actions. Yeah, the, the city of Surrey is saying the fine is for operating without a business license. The city is, uh, or Uber is saying, well, hang on a second, you guys don't even have a ride-hailing business license for us to buy. Like, show us show us the license that you want us to get. There isn't, there is not one. They don't have a business license in Surrey for ride-hailing. So how can you find someone for ha- for not having a license that the city doesn't even offer? Yeah, exactly. I think that's the issue. I think that um, because it's provincial legislation, um, the city of Surrey can't either say not give business licenses and then say you don't have one, or create something that blocked it. They, the city of Surrey said, we want to pass a, a law that says you can't have ride-hailing in Surrey. They just don't have the authority to do that. They can't supersede the provincial uh, legislation and provincial authority. So they've had a good, and I understand most other cities, if not all of them, have, have created business licenses. And the city of Surrey had an opportunity. Um, and so and the mayor's come out and said, we don't wa- want ride-hailing. So uh, right. probably that's the reason they don't have a business license, because they don't want it. Um, and they can't do that. They can't effectively block ride hailing in Surrey. There is Doug McCallum is is clearly on the record many times saying that he opposes this business. He he doesn't want Uber or Lyft in his city, and he stood up at a public meeting in in front of the a lot of the leaders in the taxi business, and and he said flat out, we're not going to is, issue business licenses to ride hailing companies. Is that something that could be entered into evidence in court? Like, is that any evidence of kind of premeditation about what's going on here or what the real agenda is or what the city's doing? They're, they're just trying to keep this company out of Surrey. Yes, no, it, it would. I would have, if it was me, I would 100% put it in front of a judge. Although I will say judges have recognized uh, over the days that politicians say things, you know, for political purpose. And so it's not the same as, you couldn't take it to the bank as, you know, that's the end of the argument, but you could uh, and and probably should put that in front of a judge and a judge would take that into account. But, you know, as I said, you know, I think since Mr. Mayor McCallum started speaking about this, maybe he's changed his tune a little bit. Okay. Speaking to lawyer Dean Davidson, he specializes in municipal law. Do you think that Uber has a strong case here? They say they're going to court too. Now they, they say that they will go to court and try to get some kind of an injunction against the city of Surrey to stop them from writing up these $500 tickets. Do you think they have a strong case to make? I think they do have a very strong case. Um, an injunction is pretty high standard, but I do think that um, so the injunction would happen would stop them, and then ultimately they, they deal with the real issue, which is does the city have the right to do this to stop Uber? Um, I would imagine, I don't know, but I would imagine the province might get involved because this is important to them. If, if you can block uh, ride hailing, what else can you block? Any city could block anything they wanted if they felt like they didn't want it in their city. So I think the province has, uh, it's important to the province generally, but um, I think they would be successful ultimately. I feel like they'd be successful with an injunction, but again, it's a, it's a little higher standard. 
Yeah, we'll see where that one goes. Speaking of the province getting involved here, which which level of government uh, has the hammer here? Because you've got a situation now where, like you said, it's a jurisdictional dispute, perhaps, where the provincial government, through the Passenger Transportation Board, which they appoint, has approved Uber and Lyft to operate throughout Metro Vancouver. And yet here you have one municipality within Metro Vancouver saying they don't want it. Like, which one... Which level of government's got the hammer here? Who's in charge? Uh, the, the province, 100%, has the hammer. Right. They've got law on their side that says you can't have a municipal bylaw that contravenes a provincial enactment. And, you know, effectively, just in, in the big picture, municipalities, all their power comes from the provinces. They pass legislation that gives them authority, and by far, they, it's, it's not even really a, a question. Uh, the province has the hammer. Last question for you, Dean. Another kind of, I think, an unfortunate sort of sideshow in this this whole this whole dispute. Uh, are the taxi companies very angry about the situation and saying that they will no longer subsidize or give incentives to taxi drivers to pick up passengers who are disabled or use a wheelchair in a in a wheelchair accessible taxi? Are they in any legal jeopardy there? I mean, aren't they required under their munis- their local taxi license to provide a certain percentage of wheelchair-accessible vehicles? Um, I, I don't know exactly, to tell you the truth, Mike, on that specific answer. I, I My sense was, from hearing what they've said, that that wasn't a requirement, but certainly if it was, yes, they would be in trouble. I, I think their position is that if they do it, so should Uber, and that does right, seem... Right reasonable that does seem reasonable that if you're going to have this uh, service to the public they should either subsidize or have a percentage of or something but um, unfortunately i can't say 100 percent. i just think generally um it's probably not laid out in the legislation really clearly thanks for your expertise no problem thanks I, I appreciate it that is dean davidson he is a lawyer he specializes in municipal law Let's talk about seniors groups now. Angry at Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum over this big ride-hailing fight. The White Rock Surrey chapter of CARP, Canadian Association of Retired Persons, Canada's largest advocacy association for older Canadians. Uh, very pleased to welcome Ramona Captain now. Hi, Ramona. Hello. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks a lot for coming on. Tell me about your concerns about what's going on in Surrey here. Well, we have uh, two big concerns. One is the uh, ride hailing, and of course, the uh, we want to keep the RCMP in Surrey because we are not at all for a new police department, as uh, the mayor and four of his councillors are trying to push forward. Uh, the ride hailing. Uh, If you ever go to a shopping mall and you see a senior with a load of groceries waiting for a taxi, you'll see that they wait forever. So ride hailing would be wonderful uh, when the, um, you know, the buses, everything stops or it's raining. Uh, seniors can't be looking for rides. I mean, they depend on their friends. Uh, those that have a car, we're, we're very fortunate, but those who don't have to depend on taxis. And uh, ride-hailing uh, is, is a wonderful thing, and we, we don't understand why the mayor is so against it. Well, he says most people in Surrey don't want ride-hailing. They, they, they like the taxis. Well, not not any that I know. Okay, okay. Uh, what do you think about the mayor saying that 
well, if any of these Uber cars show up in Surrey, we're going to write them up $500 tickets. Well, that's uh, entrapment. And if he's using the staff to call and then uh, present the Uber driver who arrives with a $500 ticket, I mean, that's unconscionable. How do you do that? Well, I guess he's trying. It's going to end up in court. That's where it's going to be fought over. And I I think the city of Surrey is going to lose on that one. Do you think that the taxi system that we have right now in, in the city of Surrey, is it providing adequate service, do you think, for your members? No, no, it's not. And uh, also, um, you know, if you're at the airport when you come back from from a trip, uh, I've personally tried to get a cab and there are so few cabs at the airport. And then they don't want to bring me down to South Surrey because, you know, it's too far. Uh, They'd prefer to stay up in North Surrey. So it's it's a real problem. Um, so instead, I always have to order a uh, an aero car, a limo, because I can't depend on the taxis. And, and also the taxis in town. I've called taxis, and they take forever to get to get to my place. Okay, what do you want the mayor to do? I want the mayor to uh, realize that we're living in 2020, not back in the horse and buggy age. And uh, he he needs to listen to what people want. Okay, you also mentioned that uh, your organization for seniors in, in Surrey supports the RCMP. Tell me, tell me why you've taken that position. Well, um, I was personally at the December 3rd council meeting and the December 16th council meeting where the budget was passed. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, the budget was passed in a matter of seconds. There were four councillors who weren't allowed to speak. So it, it really, I mean, I don't understand how that budget got passed. There is a lot of money being funneled into a new Surrey Police Department, which I don't know who actually wants it. Uh, not anybody that I know. And uh, our taxes are going to go up. Seniors don't want an increase in taxes. There are many who can't afford an increase in taxes. And the the mayor, everything that he and his four councillors have said, well, actually, they haven't really said anything. They've said that, you know, it's not going to cost more and it's going to be better. Well, it will cost more. And how will it be better? Who's going to train them? The the uh, the uh, institute, the Justice Institute that trains them, is already at capacity. Where are these new police officers going to come from? I've reached out to um, one of the four councillors who um, who is actually voting on the side of the mayor, and uh, was given no reasonable explanation. I've written letters. CARP has written letters to uh, the premier to Farnworth, to Wally Opal, to the mayor, to all the councillors, and the only councillors who reply are Linda Annis, Brenda Locke, Jack Hundile, and Stephen Pettigrew. The the others right. are, are just silent, and uh, I want to know why they think that this new police force is such a wonderful thing. Nobody will tell us. Thanks very much for coming on. I think you're raising some good points there. I appreciate it. Thank you. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. 
That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Thank you. Ramona Captain. she is the president of the Surrey White Rock chapter of CARP, Canadian Association of Retired Persons there. Demi, let's talk about the breaking news at this hour. The World Health Organization has just declared the coronavirus outbreak as a global health emergency, a public health emergency. That is the decision just in from the World Health Organization. Let's get some context on this now. Uh, well, actually, I guess, uh, let's play some sound on this now. Here is an update on that. We must act now to help countries prepare for that possibility. For all of these reasons, I'm declaring a public health emergency of international concern over the global outbreak of novel coronavirus. All right, as the official from the World Health Organization just uh, updating you now on a global health emergency and the coronavirus. Let's check in with Globe and Mail Health columnist Andre Picard. Andre, it's nice to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on. Hi. What is the significance of this? What does it mean? Well, it's a little bit of a bureaucratic measure. So the WHO is an international body. And this is a bureaucratic measure that says to countries, get ready. This is not just a problem in China anymore. You should prepare. So practically, what does it mean in a country like Canada? Nothing, because we've already taken measures. We have resources. This is really meant to prepare poorer countries for the possible possibility that this virus could come. If it goes to, say, an African country, a poor Asian country, it could spread very, very quickly. So that's what it is. It's sort of like uh, when there's an earthquake in Vancouver and an emergency is declared, it allows funds to be released and for people to, to get to work without waiting for paperwork. So it's sort of that equivalent, but on a global scale. Okay, it also potentially results in recommendations for states from the World Health Organization, right? Like, could it could there be recommendations around travel restrictions, like screenings at airports and border crossings? Yeah, absolutely. There could be some, uh, uh, we saw in uh, during SARS, there was a recommendation that people not travel to Toronto because it was a hot spot. So we could see that. We could see the WHO, the WHO single out particular areas. Uh, we've already seen severe travel restrictions in China. Uh, so they mostly count on countries to do this themselves, but sometimes they'll send warnings for, for people to not travel to certain regions. Okay, last week there were there was consideration of doing this and they did not do it. So there were a couple of times when the world health organization got together, considered doing it, held off doing it last week. Why have they decided to declare this health emergency now when they didn't declare it last week? Yeah. So there's a big debate about what's the proper timing to do this. They've been criticized in the past for pulling the trigger a little too soon. So I think the reason it's come now is we now have seen spread to 15 different countries. So there was a, possibility before that this can be contained just uh, within China and a couple of neighboring countries. But now it's clear that there's spread in other countries. There's been a person to person transmission in Germany and the U.S. in Australia. So it's something that has the possibility of spreading far more broadly. Yeah. Is that one of the key developments in your mind, Andre, that person to person transmission of cases that we've seen reported here now? Yeah, the person to person we've known about, but the fact that it's happening far away from China, so it's, you know, second, third, fourth generation, that, that's what's new, and that's why this becomes an international concern. 
Okay, speaking to Andre Picard from the Globe and Mail here about the World Health Organization declaring the coronavirus outbreak as a public health emergency. Has this happened many times before that the, the World Health Organization has done this? Uh, there have only been, I think the proper number is about six in history. So we saw uh, H1N1, uh, the swine flu was the first one back in 2009, uh, Ebola, Zika virus, uh, and uh, I think polio. Polio is a controversial one because that's a long-term issue and they got a lot of criticism for that. So now it's mostly new viruses that emerge uh, that can spread globally that, that result in this declaration, a, a FIC or FIC as it's known. Right. I remember you mentioned the SARS outbreak rec- uh, earlier and the global health emergency declared on that one. And like you said, that had a big impact back in, in Toronto. And boy, I remember th- at that time, there were a lot of concerns about the economic impact of that that would have on the city of Toronto if people would stop visiting the city. Is there kind of an economic fallout from a declaration like this? We've already seen stock markets reacting negatively to the whole coronavirus Outbreak, outbreak. Is this could this trigger some more stock market downturns? Yeah, there's definitely concern, and I think it. De- you know, the stock market, you know, is very emotional. It's going to depend on how this is interpreted. Uh, having something be called a global emergency, I think, is not going to uh, enthuse investors. So I think there'll probably be an impact economically. But I think also that the WHO is going to be a lot more cautious this time around. They got a lot of criticism and justified criticism for what they did to Toronto back in 2003. I think they were too uh, strident and acted too quickly then. And I think they'll be a little more or a lot more careful this time. Do you think they're doing the right thing, though? I mean, they've obviously been very cautious in taking this step up until now, and they they didn't want to do it in, in days earlier, but they are doing it today. Is it the right thing to do? I think it's the right thing because poorer countries, this is going to allow them to get funding to protect themselves. Uh, measures we've already taken in Canada can't necessarily be taken by, by poorer countries. So I think that's where you have to maintain the focus. That's why this is being done. And that's that's a good thing. You wrote a great column earlier this week, uh, just warning against succumbing to fear, that if we let fear control our lives, that that's a problem. Why do you think that people should keep in mind that maybe this is a limited outbreak or the risk the risk is still low yeah the risk is still very very low in canada uh it's a a virus that's come from far away it's not doesn't seem particularly infectious it doesn't seem very deadly so in the grand scheme of things it's not a big danger to us Uh, uh, as many people have pointed out the flu is a much much bigger killer a much more uh, daily threat to Canadians at this time of year than than this coronavirus. And it's unlikely that's going to change. We're going to see dozens, maybe hundreds of cases in Canada, but that's not a big deal. We see thousands of cases of many illnesses every year. So I think we have to try and keep this uh, in context and not get too worried. Uh, just because it's new, yeah, that gets our attention, but that doesn't mean it's more deadly than anything else. Andre, thanks for coming on again. Well, thank you. I appreciate it a lot. Andre Picard, he is the Globe and Mail health columnist in the news at this hour. Once again, the World Health Organization declaring the coronavirus outbreak as a public health emergency. Let's talk about the federal Conservative Party leadership race now. And it seems like the biggest news coming out of this thing lately is not who's running for the job. It's who's dropping out of the race the latest high profile exit manitoba mp candace bergen highly touted for a potential bid for this job 
I think she would have gotten a lot of support here, too, and she has now announced that she will not seek the position. That follows earlier announcements from other high-profile potential candidates dropping out of the contest. Jean Charest, the former Quebec premier, Pierre Poiliev, conservative MP, and very notably Rana Ambrose, who might have been the front runner here if she had gone for it. She announced that she is not running either for the federal conservative leadership. Is this thing like turning into a coronation here now for Peter McKay? It just seems like it's wide open for him. Let's talk to a couple of excellent analysts and pundits now. Elise Mills on the line. She's a political commentator and strategist and advisor, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Hi, Elise. Hi, Mike. Also on the line, Colin Metcalf. He is a conservative party strategist, longtime veteran of politics. Colin, thanks for coming on. Glad to be here. Elise, let me go to you first. Candace Bergen drops out of the race. Your thoughts? Um, I reached out to her last night when I heard the news, and we messaged back and forth, and she knows how disappointed I am to see that she's not going to be joining the leadership race. Um, I understand her reasons behind it, um, but I think this indicates to to women like myself in the party and maybe other members of the party that we're looking to see uh, a woman of her caliber come forward, maybe some of the issues that women are facing around uh, not just in the Conservative Party. This isn't women and leadership races and even getting them through nomination battles. As you know, Mike, being an observer for as long as you have been, it's very difficult sometimes to get the type of organization and bankroll that you need to be able to take on that type of uh, campaign. Yeah, I think she would have been a really appealing candidate. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. I think she would have got a lot of support. What What are her reasons for not running? Did she tell you? Well, I'm not going to share a personal conversation I've had with her, but I think she made it very clear in her public statement. Um, But I think this is a conversation that conservative women are having quietly uh, amongst ourselves. And I think with our husbands and boyfriends who are in the party or our friends that are men in the party. And I will say that I know a lot of men that are asking this question as well. Men that I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear from on this. And I think it goes to not just women, but a diversity of candidates. Maybe um, I think also I was hoping to see candidates come forward that like Candace, that are powerhouses that have a lot to say that are have, demonstrate agility on so many files. I mean, I keep thinking of Candace and Lisa Raitt during the SNC uh, yeah. scandal, how yeah. strong they were. Yes. Um, and I kind of expected to see some leadership coming out of the private sector who had indicated privately to some groups that they had been interested. So, um, so yeah, I think this is about looking for people that are not afraid to express big ideas and challenge uh, the current establishment or, or the current uh, menu that conservatives are receiving. Colin Metcalf, your thoughts on this Candace Bergen dropping out? And I agree with Elise there. I think she did a very effective job on the SNC-Lavalin file. She's been a really good MP, I think, for the conservatives. Uh, your thoughts on her not running? I couldn't agree more how uh, about it about it uh, it being a disappointment that she's not uh, running. Um, I'm uh, I'm still holding hope that uh, people like Michelle Rempel. Um, I know that uh, other other people, uh, men like John Williamson, are looking at uh, going. Rick Peterson has talked about going if he hasn't already confirmed. So I think that you know it's going to be a healthy race. I mean, you, you talked earlier about it being a coronation. It isn't going to be a coronation 
even with the current, um, uh, you know, uh, folks that we've got committed in the race today, because you know, um, you know, I'm I'm supporting Peter uh, Peter McKay. Um, I know that uh, Aaron O'Toole is going to be a formidable a formidable opponent, and with some of the other names that are that are still considering, I, I, it's going to be uh, it, it will be a race regardless. But uh, yeah, I was supportive. I was hopeful that, uh, as you know, Mike, when I was on your show earlier, I talked about the notion of Ron Ambrose, and you know, you got to look around and and look at what the, op- the, the current government um, were fearful of the most. Um, I think they were fearful the most of Rana. And um, for good reason. And um, when you look, when you start going down the list of those that are in the race, um, I think that they're going to also be fearful of, uh, of either of the leading candidates or several of the others that, uh, you know, if, if there's a surprise in this leadership race and one of them win, um, the good thing is, is that we've got a strong cal- uh, you know, caliber of candidates running across the board. Yeah, do you think so? Do you agree with that, Elise? I mean, do you think if you were to hold Justin Trudeau down and give him a shot of truth serum and and said, who who do who would you least least want to run against? Do you think he probably would have said Ronna Ambrose? I think he probably that's the one they feared the most. Well, I would like an opportunity just to use the truth serum on a variety of questions, Mike, with Justin Trudeau. But um, yeah, I think for sure. I mean. Colin has probably seen Rana since she left interim as being our interim leader. I'm not sure, Mike, if you've interviewed her since that time, but I think Colin would agree with me. <clears throat> Any rough edges this lady had are, have, are long gone. She's got a statesman-like appeal to her or statesman person uh, presence about her. Uh, she, I think she's fully enjoying that she can speak freely, which in a weird way has actually made her one of the most powerful conservative voices in the country. And so I find that dichotomy quite interesting. Um, but yeah, I think Rana was the person to beat. Um, and again, I think Candace Bergen would have been uh, the person to beat as well. I think, is, and I have no, I, I really, I like Peter McKay and I like Aaron O'Toole, but I'm looking for something different. I'm looking for something new. I want to see something fresh come forward. I want to be passionate. I want us to be getting out of the cycle of 2011 because that's where we've been since 2011. And I think, uh, I don't even think Mr. Harper would want us to be hanging on to that majority win and the policy plans we had then, because although they worked really well then, the country is, and the world is 100% different. Um, And I would like us to be sort of breaking past some of the impasses that we seem to be getting ourselves involved in. Um, I I remember the lead up to 2011, Colin uh, would obviously be better to speak to the intricacies of that, but I remember feeling so passionate and so proud of where we were going. We were building towards 2020 then. We should be building towards 2030 today. Okay, okay. Ronna Ambrose, I think that was a big disappointment for a lot of people that she's not running. Do you, do you think, Elise, she's holding out for that ambassadorship to the United States that there was a lot of speculation she'd be named the ambassador to Washington State or Washington, D.C. No. there? No, I think everyone, I, I, I mean, I could be 100% wrong about this, but I don't think the adversary was the job as ambassador because I think the reason she doesn't, the same reason she wouldn't take leader are the same reason she wouldn't want the ambassadorship. Yes, it's an incredibly powerful job, but I think she feels she has so much more work to do. And if you look at the, uh, what the, the, what's in front of her and the issues that she's particularly interested in advocating and speaking on, I wouldn't say the ambassadorship job is necessarily the be-all and end-all. I think it's an incredible compliment, but she would also be boxed in. She wouldn't be able to speak as freely as she does today, and I'm really enjoying watching Ronna Ambrose in 
in, in the way she behaves and operates today. Let's talk about some of the people who are running for this job here. Now, Colin, you mentioned that you're supporting Peter McKay uh, for the job. What does he bring to the to the table here? And do you think that you mentioned you don't think this is a coronation? You think he's going to have to fight to get the, to win this thing? I think every candidate that expects to uh, to walk into a leadership race and not put up a fight is uh, fooling themselves. Um, you know, I've, I go back to my first uh, um, leadership race back in in, in 1983 when I was uh, in high school supporting uh, Mulroney for that leadership. Then um, there, these are you know, rarely do you see coronations. Even when Kim Campbell, um, you know, won in uh, in the leadership uh, uh, succeeding Mulroney, um, Sheree gave him a run, uh, gave her a run for her money, and surprised a lot of people. Um, this this leadership will be no different. Uh, there, were, there are going to be uh, some, um, there are going to be, right now we've got two, I think, you know, uh, front runners in, um, in, in Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole. Uh, the reason why I've decided to support Peter is because I think he's a founding father of the, of the new Conservative Party, the Conservative Party of Canada. Um, he, he has um, uh, solid roots in the progressive conservative side of the equation, uh, and he spent uh, the entirety of, uh, of the Conservative um, uh, government in government and in cabinet. So we understand how the cabinet works. He understands uh, the importance of caucus solidarity. He understands all of the nuances around ensuring that he's got the best team in cabinet to, to govern the country properly. I'm looking forward to not only someone that's going to bring new ideas uh, and uh, and uh, policies to Canada, but also internally, I think we need to move the party forward. And in doing so, I think that we can provide Canadians with a, with a, a, a fresh alternative to what okay. we've been offering them in the past. Elise, can yeah. McKay can McKay do that? Well, this is. I think if we could just take it back a, a step, because I think we're missing uh, one key observation here, is that this leadership is not just about electing a new leader. The party is starving to for big policy, big ideas. And what I consistently am hearing from members is that legacy brand names aren't working for them. It doesn't. There's no loyalty to that anymore. They, there's many conservatives that feel that we haven't been challenged policy-wise. We haven't done the work that we should have been doing so that this leadership could have really topped it off. I think if we had done the work on the policy side prior to this time, we might have had a different conversation than we're having today. And it definitely could involve Peter McKay. But now someone like Peter McKay has the struggle of having, if he's going to go out there, he's got to come out with, a with I would expect, some uh, interesting and passionate ideas around policy, how he's going to move the party forward. All the leadership candidates will be asked by the membership in varying ways what they're going to do to answer that question, which I think makes this a different leadership uh, convention, even though, yes, we always hear about the platform and the ideas. Unfortunately, though, just the, 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 the body of the party, the mind of the party is in that position where they want that big policy type moment, those big passionate ideas, and we happen to also need a new leader. So okay. it's, I think it's more difficult than it may have been in the past. Well, Elise, do you think the, the high entry fee is a barrier in this race? $300,000? That's a lot of money. You know, I actually think it's a great thing. Um, what bothered me the most in 2017 was the quantity versus the quality. Um, and so right now we only have two candidates that have filed their papers. Um, I think that type of money means that you're raising about 30000 a week, but it also has to, it demonstrates how, not only how wide, but how deep your support is. And I think that's actually a good thing. Um, I think if you're going to be leader and possibly leader of the country, you, you need to be able to demonstrate that support. Money 
walks the talk, right, Mike? So I think it's a good thing. And that's actually, I would say, the one of the best decisions we've made around our leadership races. Um, and I don't think this, <clears throat> I wouldn't say this would have discouraged Candace Bergen. I wouldn't say that was the issue there. Um, and it definitely wouldn't have been the issue for Ronna Ambrose. So if we're speaking about it as, you know, maybe for uh, diverse candidates, women and people from different ethnic communities, I don't think that's necessarily the issue there uh, for, for these for these women. But uh, but and it definitely we'll see if someone like Rick Peterson uh, is going to be able to raise three hundred thousand dollars or, uh, you know, the other candidates that we've been talking about as well. I think I don't think Peter McKay is going to have any issue with this. And I I. I I don't know if Aaron O'Toole will be able to do it, do it, but I don't think he'll have a problem either. Colin, your I thoughts? Agree. I agree. Uh, the issue, I think one of the fundamental reasons why Candace may not have decided to uh, to move forward was on, on the issue of uh, her bilingualism. I understand that she um, can speak French, but to the extent that she can speak it well enough, I think may have been a, a big hurdle for her uh, not to overcome. I mean, some of the front runners are also being um, criticized for their um, their uh, ability to speak uh, uh, French, and it's a fair criticism. So I think that that may have been a factor in her deciding to opt out. What do you think of that, Elise? Yeah, it was definitely a factor. I would say it was the first thing that she brought up with me. So, you know, it's interesting. We want women like Candace Bergen, but we don't want necessarily... You know, we, we have to take a look at, you know, supporting women like Candace Bergen who are going to be on the trajectory of learning French. I, I understand the importance around it, but I think it says a lot when we know that the media is going to crucify and kill off really good candidates and not give them the runway to be able to learn the language. Uh, someone like Candace would have that ability to do so, but I think the concern is she doesn't want to step out there uh, and be crucified on day one. Um, and as Colin knows, uh, the criticism is harsh, and it detracts people away from learning who you really are, because right now, Canadians don't really know Candace Bergen, and so it's a huge opportunity to brand her to Canadians, but if your first story out the door is that you're just a horrible candidate because you're not bilingual or fully bilingual, then and that just sort of kills the kills the moment, Kill, kills the momentum. We, we've just got a minute left here, guys. Colin, I already see criticism on social media from the Liberals going after McKay and other and candidates in this race. Uh, after McKay had indicated that he would not support a carbon tax in Canada, is this is it is the carbon tax issue for for your thoughts? Is that one of those sort of no go zones for any conservative candidate? You can't support a carbon tax and become leader of this party. Uh, I don't think so, but I mean, it, it is a uh, a keystone element that the Conservative Party has stood behind for the for the past decade. Um, there, you know, there is going to need to be a uh, a very close examination of the uh, leadership candidates' policies for the environment and for other aspects of uh, of uh, of other key issues. Um, uh, you know, as we as we move through this race. So, uh, okay. you know, best thing I can tell you at this point is stay tuned. Thank you to both of you for coming on. Thank you. I appreciate you. it. You bet. I appreciate it a lot. That's Elise Mills and Colin Metcalf weighing in on the Conservative Party leadership race. Let's go back to the ride-hailing fight now. And I think one of the most unfortunate elements of this gong show we're seeing here now is disabled people getting dragged into it. Now, you may have heard that some of the taxi companies have said that they are not happy that they are required they are required to provide wheelchair accessible taxis for their customers but the ride hailing vehicles 
are not. That is one of the primary complaints from the taxi business. As a result, some of the taxi companies have said they will stop subsidizing wheelchair-accessible taxis. They will not give incentives to their drivers to respond to a call for a wheelchair-accessible vehicle. Uh, that's a cheap shot, in my opinion. That's a low blow. I think disabled people got nothing to do with this, and they're being victimized and dragged into it. Let's check in with Marco Pasqua now. He's an inspirational speaker, entrepreneur, and an accessibility consultant. I'm very pleased to welcome to the show. Hey, Marco. Hey, how you doing? I'm great. Thanks a lot for doing this. What do you think of this uh, situation with the taxi fight and ride hailing and disabled people kind of stuck in the middle of it? Well, as soon as I heard, uh, so first and foremost, I'm a person with a disability myself. Uh, I'm a person with cerebral palsy, and I use a manual wheelchair. And, uh, you know, normally I don't like to go to my social media to post about uh, PSAs or political announcements. But the second that I heard this announcement by the ta- uh, Taxi Association, um, I knew I had to take to, to Facebook and to my other social media platforms. And essentially, I, I just think it's absolutely disgusting, to be quite honest with you. Um, at the end of the day, the reason why ride hailing exists here in the city to begin with is because we were already fed up with poor service, especially as a person with a disability. I can't tell you the number of times where I've actually tried to call for a cab, and I've even called in advance for a cab, uh, scheduling a cab, saying that I need an accessible vehicle, and I give them a specific time. And the very next day when I'm expecting that vehicle, I'll even call like 15 to 20 minutes in advance of the time I stated, and uh, they'll tell me, oh, um, I'll ask them, is the vehicle on the way? And they'll say, well, actually, no, there isn't uh, one on the way because there isn't an accessible vehicle currently available. And I said, well, what's the point of me calling to schedule in advance if you don't have that? And they said, well, basically, it's just in order to have us know that you need a vehicle in general. But we can switch it to a non-accessible vehicle if you like. Well, that's yeah. not the point. Okay, the the truth is, is that the taxi organizations in our in Metro Vancouver have had decades to come to resolutions for better service for not just people with disabilities, but people in general. They haven't done this. And this is now why ride hailing is here. So it's too little too late to say that this is the reason why. And to drag me and my friends with disabilities into the conversation is absolutely a non-starter and exactly the wrong approach. Okay, but that said, the ride hailing companies are not required to provide accessible vehicles, right? So how would the introduction of ride hailing be a benefit to disabled people who might might not be able to use the, the vehicles anyway? Absolutely. Well, the onus isn't completely off of um, the different ride-hailing organizations. I will say that um, as a professional speaker, I travel the globe, and I've used Uber and Lyft and other ride-hailing services around the globe and in other cities where they have eventually introduced um, uh, accessible vehicles. Uber has something called uh, Uber Ways and Uber Assist. Now, these drivers require additional assistance, um, sorry, training to provide this assistance, and it does take time. Now, given that we've had ride-hailing here in Metro Vancouver, for uh, just under a week, it's going to take some time. And so I ask my friends and colleagues with disabilities, I understand that you shouldn't introduce a program um, at all if it doesn't necessarily have, you know, that already included. As an advocate for universal design and access for everyone, I can tell you I 100% agree with you. However, I do know that there's an incentive where uh, 30 cents of every ride-hailing uh, ride that's going forward is actually being put forward uh, towards developing programs like wheelchair access vehicles 
uh, here in Metro Vancouver. And I hope that Uber and Lyft are listening to this call and that they can fast track the process so that we're not waiting. Because I know that um, other provinces like Calgary, um, they're just introducing uh, these types of services now in Calgary. And um, they've already had the services for uh, a number of years above and beyond what Metro Vancouver has. So think- absolutely, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that they shouldn't have that by the, you know, by the get-go, but at least I know that they're thinking about it. Do you think the ta- the taxi companies in any way have a point, though, when they say, look, we are required as a condition of our license to run a taxi business to make sure that we have these wheelchair accessible vehicles available? I take your point that sometimes you call for one and doesn't show up, but they're, they're still required under their license to have them available. But the, the ride hailing companies are not. So when the taxi companies say they're mad about that, do you think they have a point? Oh, absolutely. They have a point to be mad about that. And even as an individual with a disability, I'm frustrated about that. But at the end of the day, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the fact that they're literally removing those subsidized vehicles off the road as a bargaining chip to in order to get their way in order for ride hailing to be reversed in the city. And that's neither here nor there. That has nothing to do with whether or not the ride hailing services currently offer those services. Although I will say that there should be an adjustment made in the future so that all ride hailing services when introduced to a new city should have that universal access introduced by default because at the end of the day i'm a person who's able to get out of my chair and transfer and do all these things but i know many friends who use power chairs and other assistive devices who are not able to make those types of transfers and go into something like say an uber xl or a larger vehicle and just make it work so you know the conversation doesn't end with the taxi companies and i want to say that not all taxi drivers have i had a negative experience so i'm not trying to throw anyone under the bus I'm just a passionate individual who speaks about advocating towards things that are right, and all I'm asking for is equal access for everyone in every capacity, right. and that right. includes you, the right hailing. Marco, do you think that this maneuver by the taxi companies could backfire on them? I mean, they're trying to say that why should we go out of our way and, and absorb these extra costs to provide these accessible vehicles if the right hailing companies don't have to do it? And, and like you say, they appear, they certainly have a point, I guess, in theory. But do you think by saying that, well, we're not going to we're not going to subsidize these vehicles anymore? This backfires on them. I don't see how this gets them any more public support for their cause. I think it might have the opposite effect. No, you're absolutely right. In fact, if they wanted us to overturn ride hailing, what they should have done is the exact opposite of this. They should be introducing more accessible vehicles into their fleet and providing uh, faster and more reliable services. I know that there's alternatives to ride hailing programs that they've just started to introduce uh, apps of their own to introduce the idea that you can have, uh, you know, the reassurance that a vehicle is on its way. Why would you do less of something and expect to get more? That's just not going to happen. Do you think the government dropped the ball in any way on this? You mentioned that under the terms of ride hailing, as it's been approved in the province, there's a a 30 cent per trip fee that is put into a pot of money or a fund to provide for disabled people access to vehicles. The government really hasn't explained how that's going to work, though. The money is being collected. It's being put in a fund. It's kind of like, well, we'll figure it out later what to do with the money. Do you think that that a program should have been set up and ready to go on day one when ride hailing started rolling here in the region that we'd know exactly where this money is going to go and how it's going to help disabled people? Absolutely. I would agree in saying that I do think that there should be more education and explanation put forward 
um, by the government. But I will say on the aspect of that, that, you know, you have to understand that this was already caught up in so much bureaucracy just to get ride hailing in general off the ground. And I was relieved to hear the day that they finally said, look, we're going to actually make a provincial approach where it's going to have us be able to offer this type of licensing where you don't necessarily have to get a business license in every single municipality in order for ride sharing to be able to exist here in Metro Vancouver. And so for that, I can say that that's really interesting. I really hope that we're going to have our provinces back uh, when they when they come back and they have a rebuttal to the Taxi Federation saying, look, if there's any cities or organizations that want to overturn this or say that they're not accepting of ride sharing in their community, look, we're doing this for the betterment of our province, for the people who live it and at the end of the day everybody just wants to get to the places that they need to get to whether yeah. it's for a live, live work or play marco thanks for coming on thank you so much have a great you day bet. same to you that is marco pasqua he is an accessibility consultant and as you heard uh, he's a he's a disabled guy himself he uses a wheelchair and he is passionate about this issue i agree with him i think that it's just bad public relations for the taxi companies here i think they've made a strategic error Let's talk about Seattle's new NHL team. I think this is super cool that Seattle's getting a hockey team. It just sets up as a classic rivalry with the Canucks. A lot of speculation out there now about what the name of the Seattle team will be called. They are getting closer and closer to naming Seattle's NHL franchise. But there are numerous reports circulating online that the decision has already been made and that they're going with the Seattle Kraken. Now, the team, though, saying that, hold your horses, we haven't decided yet what the name of the team it will be. But I got to tell you, I think Seattle Kraken is a pretty cool name. Now, if you remember maybe the classic line from the movie's as delivered by Liam Neeson in Clash of the Titans. Here it is. Release the Kraken. Release the Kraken. The other, of course, classic line from Liam Neeson in the movie Taken. Let's just play that for a sec, too. I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Yeah, that's, that's Liam Neeson there, too. But we're not talking about that film right now. We're talking about... Clash of the Titans and Liam Neeson's great line there. Play that one again, Dwayne. Release the Kraken. Release the Kraken. So is it time for Seattle to release the Kraken on the NHL? Is that going to be the new name of Seattle's hockey team? Let's check in with Jeff Baker. He's a staff reporter at the Seattle Times. How are you doing, Jeff? Hey, I'm Thanks. I'll be even better when I actually make this name decision talk about it. Okay, yeah, it'll be fantastic. Jeff, you're breaking up super bad on your cell there. I don't know if you can step closer to a window or something like that. Maybe we'll get a maybe we'll get a closer, better connection from you. Um, Seattle Kraken. What are, what are you hearing? How about is, now? How's the uh, how's the uh, connection now? That is much better, sir. Thank you for that. Now, Seattle Kraken. Do you think? What are you hearing from your sources down there? Is that going to be the name of this team or what? I'd be very surprised if it if it was. Um, they, they've been saying nonstop that whatever they choose is going to have some kind of connection to Seattle or, or the Pacific Northwest. And other than the Northwest being next to a body of, of ocean water, I, I don't really see any connection with the Kraken to, to a local, <laughs> anything locally here in Seattle. I mean, there is a connection in, in that Jerry Bruckheimer, uh, one of the Seattle team owners, 
uh, was the Hollywood producer for the Pirates of the Caribbean movies when, when they had a Kraken in that one. So, oh, yeah. Um, I, yeah, so that that's definitely a corporate connection that they have. But, uh, no, there, there isn't really any Northwest feel to it. And I know that they've been trying to uh, gauge interest in that, and they've been told repeatedly that a lot of the fans here prefer some kind of a local tie, a regional tie, with whatever the name is. I mean, that said, nobody's going to be happy with any of the names that they fit. So um, <laughs> there's always going to be people that are upset and that think they have a better name. But, I, you know, there, there's definitely a lot of promotional stuff they could base off the crack, and I'm just not sure they're going to go with it. I'm really not. So uh, we'll just have to see. Okay, interesting. I was thinking like the momentum seemed to be building toward this Seattle Kraken thing, but but maybe not. What are some of the other names out there, Jeff, that are in the running? Well, just to get back to the first point, I, I mean, there is some momentum for it, but I would say there's equally uh, an opposition to having Kraken as the name. I mean, if you go online and you really watch it, you, you know, there, there are people, a lot of them tend to be younger, uh, who, who prefer that kind of name. They think that it's, that it's cool, and I think... It, You'll find anybody over the age of 40, uh, I would say, tends to oppose it just because they look at it as a gimmick. They they, they remember the Anaheim Mighty Ducks, how that seemed cool at the time oh, for, yeah. for everybody who watched the movie. And then it became ridiculed for the next 10 years, and they finally dropped the Mighty part from the Ducks name, and it took a while to get over that. So, you know, that said, there's other names. The Sockeyes is one name that was mentioned, although there is a potential trademark issue with that. Uh, the Totems is another popular one because of the American Hockey, the uh, sorry, Western Hockey League franchise when it was minor pro hockey back in the 60s and 50s. That used to be the Totems here in the early 70s, and the, the team's not going to go in that direction. They're a little, they're, they're staying away from any kind of conflict with Native uh, American groups, oh, yeah. and, and Totems actually aren't indigenous to to this part of the of the Northwest. So that there's a, a question about that about appropriating symbols. The Metropolitans, of course, won a Stanley Cup, but there's there's worries about a conflict there, potential trademark conflict with the New York Mets, and also you know one of the Metropolitan the Metropolitan divisions in the NHL is named after that, so it would be a a very confusing thing. I mean, there's all kinds of issues with a bunch of names, so um, it really is uh, it really is a question mark. People have suggested Sasquatch. Orcas, and again, orcas could have a problem with the Canucks because they have an orca on their right. jersey. Right. Um, so, you know, it really, it's pretty wide open at this stage. But I, I have to say that a lot of the people with the team were, were pushing me away from the Krakens, from, from the Kraken name privately, all, all through the last few months when, when we've had discussions about it. Um, as the writer of the piece that, that got this whole thing started yesterday, even said, you know, he was pretty surprised when he heard it was going to be the Kraken because nobody from the team was putting anybody anywhere near that name. Uh, they, they were kind of dismissing it behind the scenes. Yeah, that's it. That's very interesting, Jeff. And I can see how maybe a younger demographic might respond more positively to the Kraken name as this kind of legendary sea monster, which seems to be kind of cool. And, and you know, I've seen some whiskeys named after the Kraken and stuff like that and uh, popular movies and, and stuff so maybe and it would certainly be a cool looking jersey wouldn't it if they had like a Kraken sea monster on the jersey oh for sure there's, there's all kinds of things you, you could do with it and there, there's of course the movie tie-ins there's yeah I mean the marketing possibilities are endless uh, you know the downside of this is you lend yourself to uh to, to you know, a handful of jokes. Uh, people are already calling the suggesting the new arena here in Seattle should be called the uh, the Seattle Crack House 
or, or the Kraken house. <laughs> and they're yeah. saying it would, it would fit in well with our city's homeless uh, population oh, problem and, yeah. uh, and issues that they're dealing with. And so I don't know if that's necessarily anything they want to be linked to. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, there, there's all kinds of, uh, there, there's all kinds of ways that that could go negative, but you could do that with just about any name, to be honest with you. Sure. So, um, uh, no, I definitely agree that there is a cool factor to it. Now, the, the yeah. problem is, you know, you have to think that this team's going to be around for more than 10 or 20 years. And, you know, what's it going to look like 10 years down the road? Will everybody still get the joke or will it be, uh, you know, what the heck's a crack and how did they ever come up with that name in the first right. place? So, yeah. I mean, we'll have to see. This is, boy, this is a tough choice here. This is going to be interesting. The Sockeyes, that's that's an interesting idea for the Seattle Sockeyes. I, I know there are some people here in Vancouver, Jeff, maybe you've heard this, are kind of hoping that Seattle goes with the Sockeyes because, as you mentioned, the orca killer whale is a symbol of the Canucks, and some people have pointed out that orcas like to eat Sockeyes, so maybe that would be a, a natural. What do you think? Yeah, I've seen, I've seen some of the Canucks fans saying that online, and you know, yeah. That killer whales also eat squid, right? And that's kind of what the kraken is—is is a giant squid. So that, it, 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 you, if you had a big orca, you know, they still might be able to eat the squid. So who, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Okay. When, but, when are uh, they going to announce yeah. the name? Uh, I was told in March uh, it's going to happen in March. Oh. And one of the reasons they're having such a delay—originally it was supposed to be around the All Star game, but they put that off a few weeks ago. They said it will probably be late February. Or in March, I'm told now it's going to be March. They they they're having a they they had to do a lot of research with the trademark issues, and the league insisted on that because the league had a problem with the Vegas Golden Knights, of course, and the U.S. Army ended up filing a trademark opposition for the Golden Knights because they have a parachute team named Golden Knights, and and that took a year for them to resolve. So they don't the NHL doesn't want a repeat of that. They want this to be nice, clean, and easy. Jeff, exciting times in Seattle for hockey fans. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks, guys. Take care. You, you bet. Thank you. Jeff Baker, he's a staff reporter with the Seattle Times here with all the buzz out there. What will be the name of Seattle's NHL team?